Um, man, I'm so excited to be here this morning with you to talk um, continually as we look at the book of Philippians together to try to figure out uh, who we are. Um, and sometimes I think identity for us is a difficult thing. Identity for, for any human being is kind of at the core of what we want to, uh, to figure out about ourselves is what is it that defines us and who am I? Sometimes I think people search for, for things and they, they hunger after things and you can just see sometimes in their lives the things that they're chasing after. And they go from one, like, okay, this is the thing. They go from one thing to the next, and they, they, they grab onto this. This is going to be the thing that I need. This is going to be the thing that's going to bring me fulfillment. This is the relationship that's going to do it. This is the job that's going to do it. This is the career that's going to do it. This is the get-rich-quick scheme that's going to solve all my problems and make everything go away. And they just grasp, and they grasp, and they grasp after things that just fade away into nothing and have no eternal value at all. And so we're chasing, constantly chasing this contentment, this peace, this depth of understanding who we are to be able to define ourselves. And so it's just a never-ending hamster on a wheel kind of a life that some people are living. And so I think what we want to try to figure out uh, as we go through uh, the book of Philippians is who are we? Um, What do we do? And then how do we do it? Those are the three sections we're going to look at. Uh, Just to remind you a little bit about the the letter uh, to the church in Philippi. This was a letter the apostle Paul wrote. So let's talk a little bit about the city Philippi. Philippi was named... um, by Philip after Philip. So if you're that kind of a guy, you get to name a a city after yourself, you must have some power and a big ego, right? Um, So Philip wanted to name a a city after himself. So in 356, uh, he came and he conquered this area and he named this city after himself. Uh, His son, Alexander the Great, you may have heard of him if you paid attention to world history at all. Alexander the Great, the founder of the Greek Empire, he was the one who kind of used Philippi, this city, as his base of operations for the conquest of the world that he would embark upon uh, during that time. So it was a very important city once the Roman Empire kind of took over. the, the Roman emperors would send some of their uh, retiring army generals and military leaders, they would send them to this region to retire. It's kind of like the, the Palm Springs of the region. And so they would go there and they would retire. So there's a very heavy Roman presence in the city of Philippi because of this. And so what would happen a lot of times is you would see, like, if, if there's a bunch of Romans living in an area during this time, then the common language would become uh, Latin of the day, kind of the common day. So even even though it was a it was a Greek city from the beginning, uh, Roman influence was heavy, and probably during Paul's day and Jesus' day, there was there was uh, uh, Latin was the predominant uh, word that was spoken. The city of Philippi was also located in an interesting spot geographically uh, from an economic perspective because it was kind of in between Asia, the countries of Asia, and the countries of Europe. And so it was considered in, in the area of Macedonia, um, and so it would be uh, in common day Greece. And so this idea that this city was kind of located on this trade route, so if you were a trade merchant and you lived in the city of Philippi, you could get merchants that coming through, you could get merchandise from Asia. Asia and, and then sell them in Europe. So it's a very important city uh, as far as economics go. So this is the place that Paul had visited. It's the first church that was founded in Europe uh, is in the city of Philippi. So if we think about this idea, the letter that he's writing to this church is, um, is an important letter because Paul has fallen in love with these people. And we talked about that last week, his deep love for them because of their partnership with him in the gospel. And he talked about them being servants. He talked about them being partners with him in the gospel. He talked about them being fellow partakers of the grace of God. And so Paul expresses his deep love for them, not because he just gets along with them and they've got great personalities, 
but because they are partners with him in the gospel and they're centered around the gospel and they're passionate about the gospel. So this is a place that Paul goes to to found this church. Remember, like when Paul would go into a city, like these people hadn't heard of Jesus, right? This is a region where Jesus didn't operate. And so they, he walks into the city of Philippi and nobody knows the story of Jesus. And there's not even hardly any Jews in the area. And so he begins to just tell the story of Jesus and begins to pull converts to him, people who find faith in Jesus. And he builds a church, establishes leaders in the church, and then he goes on to the next city. And so then the the letters that he writes that we have in the New Testament are letters of encouragement he's trying to write to these churches. Or in the Corinthian uh, letters, um, it's correction a lot of times for the churches. Like, hey, you guys are messing this up. You need to get this right. Um, and so Paul's writing to, this is the first place in Europe where somebody was baptized for the name of Jesus was in, in Europe, was in this city of Philippi, in this church. So Paul is in his first imprisonment uh, in Rome. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in detail in, as we get into the message, kind of what that means. Um, so he's writing this letter while in prison, about 62 AD. He's in Rome. He's writing to the city of Philippi, to this, this town, this church that he loves. Um, here's what I want you to know about what we're going to do in this series. We're going to, we're going to walk through the whole book of Philippians, but we're going to do it in three sections. Um, number one, who are we? We're going to answer that question. Number two, what do we do? And then number three, how do we do it? That's kind of how we're going to walk through this together over the next several weeks. So today's message will be from chapter 1, verses 12 uh, through 18. The main point is this, is that followers of Jesus are ambassadors of the gospel. That's who we are. Followers of Jesus are ambassadors of the gospel. Now, in, in church world, like we use the word, especially in the evangelical church world, which we are part of, we use the word gospel a lot. You've heard it mentioned several times this morning already in our worship service. Where does this word come from? What does this word mean? So let's think about this, all right? So um, originally, the Greek word is euangelion, which we translate as gospel, Euangelion is how you pronounce that. So that's when you see gospel in the New Testament, when you see the word gospel, the Greek word that's behind that translation is euangelion. Um, in, in the Latin, it was translated as evangelium. So it was kind of this a transliteration of the word euangelion. Translation means I'm going to figure out this word in this language, and there's a word in this other language that means the same thing as that word. Uh, and so it's from evangelism, we get gospel, right? From euangelion, we get gospel. Um, but a transliteration is, okay, this word looks like this other word that I can create a new word in this, in this language I'm trying to translate into. And so that's where we get the word evangelism from is because it comes from this idea of what euangelion and evangelium looks like, right? The letters look like that. So we created an English word called evangelism, but it comes from, the word gospel comes from the old English, the original translations of the Greek text into the New Testament, of the Latin text into the New Testament, into the English language, was how do we translate this idea of a good news or a good story? Because that's what euangelion literally means. And so good or goad uh, in, the, in the original old English, right? Goad spell is the same thing as good story or good news. So that's how it, now in our modern-day English, it's become this word gospel. So you now understand, like, you're an expert on the word gospel. So now you can go, and at parties, when you're talking to people about Jesus, you can say, look, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel, and here's where that word came from, right? 
you'd be very popular. You can go into your small group. You can impress people with your word origin knowledge. So let's think about this, right? So we know the word. What does the word mean? But what, what is the gospel? We, I asked this question in my small group this week, in my connect group. I asked them to tell me what the gospel is. I had some really good answers um, because those people understand the gospel. Um, think about this. Here's what the gospel is, the foundation. So if somebody says to you, what is the gospel? What does it mean? What is the good news? Well, the good news starts with bad news. Good news always covers bad news. You ever thought about that? Like when you're like in a tough time and somebody gives you some good news, like let's say that the bill collectors have been calling and your husband comes home and says, baby, I won the lottery. Like that covers that bad news, right, that the bill collectors have been calling. So the bad news is that we're all sinners, every single one of us, without Jesus. Every, every human being that's ever breathed breath on this earth was born into sin beyond Adam and Eve's sin, right? So we're born into sin. So we're born sinners. We're born without relationship with God, without Jesus. That's the bad news. So we have to understand clearly our stance without Jesus to fully embrace the goodness of the story of Jesus. So if we don't understand, okay, where are we without Jesus, then we'll never really fully embrace the goodness and the grace of God and the love and the miracle of the gospel. So we have to be honest and say, like, like, there's no such thing as, like, a good person that's born. Like, we're all bad, every single one of us, from the Pope on down. Like, we're all born into sin. We are. And so let's be honest about that. So that's the gospel. That's where we start. It's the foundation of understanding our sin before God. And number the, the kind of the middle part is that Jesus paid the debt of our sins on the cross. Jesus took the weight of all of our sin. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He paid a debt that we couldn't pay. He did it all for us. He stood in our place. He took our punishment. That's good news. Right? Because if a righteous human being who was fully God and fully human stood in our place on the cross, then our sins are covered. And when God looks at us, he looks at us through the righteousness of Jesus. We call that in theological terms the imputed righteousness of Jesus upon us. So now the good news is that we have, through faith now in Jesus, we have a relationship with God. And through faith in Jesus, we have an eternal existence with God. It goes beyond this life. And so if we have a gospel perspective, our perspective doesn't stop at the point of which, like, the, the end date that they're going to put on our tombstone. It goes well beyond that. And so our perspective totally changes if we're living for the gospel. So we have to begin with this understanding when we say gospel. When I say gospel throughout this message, um, I want you to understand when, when Weston was, was talking about the gospel center, being gospel-centered, like you need to understand what does that mean? Don't just throw that around flippantly. Understand the weight and the power and the miracle of what that means. This is indeed good news. So we're going to look together at... Uh, Chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. What Paul is expressing here is a very focused um, perspective that his life is all, all and only about the gospel. So, so let's go through this. Number one, key point number one is this, is that we are content in the gospel. We are content in the gospel. What does Paul say? He says, man, I want you to understand this, like, that my predicament is, is working for the good of the gospel. My circumstances, even though they be bad and I end up in prison and I sit in prison and I'm confined, even though those things are happening to me, this is good for the advancement of the gospel. In other words, Paul is content in the gospel. What do we know about Paul's imprisonment? Well, if you read Acts chapter 28... Uh, and uh, verse 11 and following, you kind of get the story of Paul's imprisonment that he's writing from. Now, if you remember the story, we, we actually did a whole uh, couple of different sermon series in and around Paul's arrest and his trial and his defense. And so we talked about what was Paul's defense of when he got arrested and he was brought before Felix and he was brought before Agrippa. Basically, his defense was, I'm a follower of Jesus. Do with it what you want to. He didn't really try to defend himself. He had been accused by some of the Jewish people, Jewish leaders in and around Jerusalem. They had him arrested. He brought him before uh, Felix and Agrippa. And eventually, Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. He can do that. And any time that happened during the Roman rule, like that person was sent straight to Rome to appeal before Caesar. And so Paul then goes on this journey from Jerusalem to Rome, and there's a shipwreck that happens on the island of Malta. It's really great, really good drama, good narrative. Go in there and read that. You can read how focused Paul is on the gospel in the difficult things of a shipwreck. It's amazing stuff. And he finally lands in Rome, and you can read that um, in the book of Acts, kind of at the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts actually ends uh, with Paul's imprisonment here in this first imprisonment in Rome. Now, some of you may have known that there's persecution that would take place under Nero of Christians. That didn't happen until after this imprisonment. But this imprisonment is simply because Paul has been proclaiming the, the gospel and the Jews didn't like it, so they had him arrested. That's essentially what's going on. So this imprisonment, he's probably not in a true prison. Acts 28 kind of indicates that there was a guard assigned to him. 
and they probably would rotate those guards' assignment, and he was living in that kind of a house, and he was chained, and he was, he was bound, and he couldn't leave, and so people would come to him. He actually gathered all the Jewish leaders of, in Rome that he could get to come to him to talk to them about Jesus and to tell them about his defense and what was going on, and he brought other peop- they brought other people to him so that he could proclaim the gospel while he's in prison. So Paul is excited about being in prison. He's content with the gospel. See, oftentimes I deal with people and I hear them talk in terms of their circumstances in relationship to their understanding of the gospel and their relationship with God. And they allow their circumstances to dictate their, uh, their approach to God and their thought about God and their relationship with God and their approach to the gospel. In other words, the gospel is all on fire in their life when things are good. But when things are bad, it's tough. And I just know, like, uh, I think, Ray, Ray, you mentioned it earlier, like, some of you guys walked in here, like, and you've, you've, you're going through some tough times, and, and there's grief, and there's pain, and there's hurt, and there's brokenness. And I think what we need to take from this message today in Paul's circumstance, his contentment in the gospel, the promise of an eternal life, no matter what we face here, isn't that enough? Some of you will remember the story that we used. We interviewed um, my wife's uh, cousin's daughter um, after she lost her dad to ALS, and um, she was praying for his healing, and she was frustrated that God didn't heal him. She was broken about that. And she said she was talking to one of the neighbors about, like, her anger towards God and her not understanding, like, I prayed for God to heal him. Why didn't God heal him? And the neighbor looked at her and she said, I've been praying about it too, and I feel like God asked me to tell you this. Like, isn't heaven enough of a miracle? And so I think, like, to have that contentment in the gospel, in the promise of the eternal nature of what it is that we believe. And that doesn't make those circumstances any easier, but it does give us an underwriting contentment that I think is so fleeting, it's hard for us as humans to experience this. Jeremiah Burroughs, who's a, um, a Puritan pastor, he wrote this great book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you guys could fight through some of the older English in that, it, it's an awesome book about what it means to be content. Um, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In that, he writes this. He said, here lies the bottom and the root of all contentment. When there is an evenness in proportion between our hearts and our circumstances, that is why many godly men who are in low position live more sweet and comfortable lives than those who are richer. What's he saying? He says that our circumstances don't don't negate the gospel. Is that if we can understand the gospel at the center and let that be our contentment, then it doesn't matter what we have or what our circumstances are. He goes on to use this great illustration. I love the illustration that he uses. He talks about a ballast in a ship. If you think about a ballast in a ship, what is is the purpose of a ballast? The ship actually pumps water into the bottom of the ship to provide stability for the ship and maneuverability to be able to handle the waves and the difficulties that might come in a storm. And some of you might see these tankers that are pumping out water. What they're doing is they're regulating their ballast. And so if they have a lot of cargo in, then they need less ballast because the weight is there 
to, to protect them. If the ship is moving without cargo, they have to pump in a lot of water to provide stability for the ship out in the open ocean because of the big waves. And so sometimes we can have too much ballast. We can bring too much in, and it sinks us, right? So there's a managing of the ballast that needs to take place. If we don't have enough ballast, then we fall over because we just can't handle the waves. And so I think what, what um, uh, Jeremiah Burrs is saying here is this idea that for the human existence, for us to have this ballast of the gospel at the center of who we are, then that can give us that contentment, that base of understanding, that living kind of breathing anchor for our lives that allows us to weather whatever the storms and the waves are trying to do on the outside. If we have the ballast of the gospel and our understanding of that at the core of who we are, then we can handle anything. And the amount of which we offer that is good. Like sometimes I've seen people, though, that they get so focused on like their faith that they just turn inward on it. Like, in other words, they become so focused on gaining more biblical knowledge, gaining more understanding, gaining, and like, it's all about them and God, and them and God, and them and the Word of God, them and the Word of God, and they do that so, they turn so inward on it, and it consumes them so much that they forget to share the gospel with other people. And so the ballast then becomes to weigh them down so much that they're actually underwater. What should be above water for everybody to be visible is now underwater because they've sucked it down so much. But then there are people who, like, maybe have a cursory faith in God, and they kind of believe that there is a God, but they've never really truly understood the gospel and embraced the gospel for the truth for their life. And so they're, they're, every time one wave comes, bam, it knocks them over. The slightest little thing comes, and it just knocks them over, and they can't handle it. They're not grounded. They don't have enough ballast. But those who have a clear understanding of the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God for those of us, who have embraced that. And, and we see that from an outward perspective. Like the Apostle Paul can look in his circumstances and see awesome things for the gospel while he's in prison. That's a strong, contented person in the gospel. And so we find ourselves kind of beyond our circumstances because the gospel has provided us this contentment. Key point number two is this, is that we are aware of the gospel impact around us. Paul begins to pay attention to what's going on around him because Paul's aware of his circumstances. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, right? So he's excited about that. And then verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. In other words, Paul sees two good things that he's aware of. In other words, the whole imperial guard, which is probably a 1,000 soldiers, like they're aware that this guy in this house that they're taking turns guarding, that he's there for Jesus. And they may may not have ever heard of Jesus until that point. So Paul sees that as good. He's aware of the impact of the gospel of what's happening to him. He sees the positive benefit of it. Not only that, it's because of his imprisonment that the other believers in the area are now emboldened to speak the gospel. Remember, this is prior to the persecution of Christians that Nero began after 64 AD. So this is probably about 62 AD. So they're not under persecution of the Roman government at this time. So they're free under Roman rule at that point to share the gospel. But maybe they've been a little timid. 
Maybe they've been a little scared about it. But now Paul is here, and Paul's taking prison for the gospel. What am I doing about the gospel? Paul's willing to sit in prison. He tells all the guards. He calls people to him. He calls the Jews to him, and he tells the gospel to them. What am I doing? So Paul becomes aware of his circumstances. Are you guys aware of your circumstances? Are you one of those people that just doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the world around you? Have, have people ever said you're oblivious? Um, the other day, we were at um, our lot, and we were doing some work, and I had some guys out there that were helping me do some work. Um, they were clearing out some underbrush for me, and I was talking to these guys, and Dana, my lovely sweet wife, was um, painting the mailbox out by the road. And we're standing there. I'm standing there talking to these two guys that are there helping me do this work. And as we're standing there, right, and Dana's up by the road, uh, up at the road. We're standing further down on the property. And we look up, and we hear this screeching, right? Obviously, the screech of a bald eagle. And we're all, all three of us guys are like, whoo, wow. This bald eagle comes down, like, right across the road from our property, swoops down, screeching the whole time, grabs something, and flies off. We're like, man, that was a bald eagle. That was awesome. I asked Dana Lair, I said, you see that eagle? What eagle? <laughs> Why? Because she was oblivious to what was going on right in front of her. I mean, it's, it's rare that you get to see a bald eagle you know, like, right across from your house, right? It's, but some people are just oblivious to what's going on around them. I mean, she was focused on the mailbox, and I'll give her credit. The mailbox looks really good. <laughs> but she missed the eagle. Are you, are you really looking? Are you really looking around you? In your family? Your neighbors? Your coworkers? The people that you come into contact with on a regular basis? Are you listening for triggers for the gospel in them? Are you paying attention to what God might be up to in their lives? Are you looking to see, is the gospel radiating off of me enough to touch them? You see, Paul is very aware of what his imprisonment is doing, not to him. He's not so concerned about that. What he's concerned about is how is this affecting the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel? Because that's at the core of who he is, because he's content in that and that alone. He's living for the gospel. And so for him to pay attention to see, not only do the guards now know about Jesus when they didn't know about him before because I'm in prison and they have to deal with me and they've all heard about me, this crazy guy who brings all these people in and tells them about Jesus. Not only is that good, but also now look at what's happening to all the other guys, all the other Christians in the community. Like now they're sharing the gospel too where they weren't before. And that excites Paul. But you have to be aware of that kind of thing to see it. Like, are you paying attention? Like, is the gospel radiating off me enough to impact the lives of those people that I'm dealing with? Or do the people that you work with not even have a clue that you're a follower of Jesus? Um, I went to um, a, a, a seminar at uh, Southeastern uh, Seminary uh, probably a year and a half ago now. And there was a young pastor I met there. His name was Philip Corbin. He's a pastor in Georgia. Um, 
fell in love with this young guy. He's just a great guy. Um, and you can just tell he loves his people. And he was talking about this, this older couple in his church. And he said that the husband of this couple um, had cancer. And he said that, like, everywhere that they would go, like, when, they would go, when he would go for his treatments, he would go for treatments and chemo treatments and stuff, that they would share the gospel. And, and he and his wife, they would share the gospel with everybody they came into contact with, all the nurses, all the doctors. Everybody just loved these people and just understood that they were gospel-centered people because they just, they just spoke it and they lived it. And the man's cancer went into remission, and they celebrated that as a church and as a family. And then a little while later, the cancer comes back. And Philip was telling the story. He said, I was there visiting with him. He said, I'm brokenhearted for these people that I love. And he says, you know, the man looked at his wife and said, well, you know what? There just must be somebody we hadn't shared the gospel with at the hospital. Maybe God wants us to go share the gospel with somebody else. How do you have that attitude? Because number one, you're content in the gospel. It's enough. And number two, you recognize that your life is for the gospel and you're aware of your impact on others. Key point number three is this, is that we are champions of gospel proclamation. Now, you know, in in my world, in church leadership world, you know, we joke a lot about um, pastors and, you know, motivations and those kind of things. And in certain circles, we joke about other people. And in certain other circles, they joke about people like us and all that kind of stuff. And there's um, jealousies and there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. And I was at a conference one time and uh, the pastor was, the guy that was preaching, he was talking about uh, pastors too often try to run the race of another pastor. Like we, we chase after, like, because our culture, even in Christian culture, we glorify the pastor of the megachurch, right? And so then, you know, the rest of us are trying to measure ourselves to that, and we chase after that, and we end up trying to, once we realize that, then we, if we're paying attention, we're trying to run somebody else's race. We're not trying to run the race that God has given us, and we have to find contentment in that. But what does Paul see here? Like, because he's paying attention. Not only is he paying attention that the gospel is being proclaimed, he's also paying attention that some of the people that are now emboldened to share the gospel, they're doing it off of false motives. And he said, I don't, really, I don't really like their heart, but I can be excited that they're proclaiming the gospel. In the end, he says, I rejoice that people are proclaiming the gospel, even if their motives are improper. Now, I'll be honest with you, like, I've met a lot of local pastors, and there's some that I love and respect tremendously, and there's some that I really don't want to be around. <laughs> and I question their motives. But I look at their churches, and I celebrate the gospel that's being proclaimed in their churches. And I think sometimes we have to think about that. Like, in other words, we, we oftentimes, as believers, want to attack the motives and the, the heart of other believers. Instead of looking at seeing, okay, is God using that? Is there some glory for God to be found in that? And can I find peace by celebrating how God is glorified, even in something that I don't necessarily agree with? And that's hard. But that's what Paul is doing. And Paul is sitting in prison, locked up. He can't leave. And he knows because of what he's seeing and what he's hearing. He knows the motivation of some of these people. Like, it's just not good. 
But he, he knows there's some that are like doing it from a pure heart, and they just love the gospel like him, and they're just selflessly sharing the gospel and don't care about their own glory, and they're just going after what is good for the kingdom, and they're chasing after that. But then there are those who are just trying to build their own kingdom by sharing the gospel. But what Paul can see is that the receiver of the gospel still gets to hear the gospel. And he's celebrating that. He's a champion of the proclamation of the gospel. He's not hung up on their motivation to the point where it drags him down, and he gets so hung up on that. He's not sitting there praying against these people. He's celebrating that the gospel is being proclaimed no matter the motivation. Two things I think we can take out of this. Number one is we better check our motivation for a proclamation of the gospel. Let's check our motivation when we're doing something for the name of Jesus. Is it truly for his glory? Or do we sometimes stamp the name of Jesus and the label of the gospel on something that's all about us? I think it's healthy for us to always ask ourselves those questions. No matter what ministry we're in or no matter where we're volunteering or no matter what we're doing, Let's, let's make sure we're asking ourselves those questions. Is this about me, or is there something I need to check myself on here? I think it's healthy for us to do that. And I think the other thing is, let's don't be so quick to judge the hearts of others. You know, I need to repent of that, really. That Can I not just see the proclamation of the gospel in somebody's ministry? And be okay that Jesus' name is being made great in the lives of people even if I don't really like the motivation of those who are doing it. Because it ain't about me. It's not about what I like and what I don't like or what I approve of and what I don't approve of. It's all about what Jesus thinks of what's going on and is his name being exalted. And we celebrate that. You see, as followers of Jesus, if you want to know who we are, we're ambassadors of the gospel. First, foremost, foundationally, our lives should be built on this understanding of who Jesus is and what it means that he came. What it means for us now and what it means for us eternally. How does it impact us as wives, as mothers, as sisters, as brothers, as sons, as daughters, as fathers, as husbands, as coworkers, as neighbors, as citizens? What does the gospel mean in all those ways in which we serve, all those roles in which we exist in in our lives? How is the gospel impacting everything that I am? We are ambassadors of the gospel. So people are watching you. They're watching your life. They're paying attention. If they know you're a believer, please live so that they see Jesus in you. Would you stand this morning? Here's what I want you to think about. As we define who we are, I want you to think about right now, who are you? If you had to define yourself, like, would you say that you're an ambassador of the gospel? Would you say that you're a follower of Jesus? And I think ask yourself this question. If other people were asked, people that know me well, if other people were asked, who is that person, what would they say? Would they say what you want them to say? Would they see what you want God to see? Because that's the final question. Like, if you were to stand before the Father today and ask him, Father, who am I? What would he say? If 
you're a follower of Jesus, what he would say to you is, you're my daughter, you're my son, and I love you. And the brokenness that's inside your heart goes away through the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, I love you, my son and my daughter. You are mine. That's what he would say. If you've never given your life to follow Jesus, then God looks at you, right? And he, he loves you desperately enough that Jesus went through the cross knowing your sin. But yet you don't know him. Like he's estranged from you. He feels a distance from you. And so the truth is that without Jesus in our sin, we're enemies of God. And God looks at us in love and desperation that we would come and be his children. And so if you're in that place this morning, I'm begging you, right, to receive the gospel for the first time this morning. To ask God to forgive you and to receive the the righteousness of Jesus to cover your sins and live from this moment forward content in the gospel for your life. And there's some of us that just need to check ourselves and our motivation and, and our centered. What are we centered on? Like, are we centered on the gospel? Is that defining us? Maybe we need to repent of some things this morning that has gotten in the way so that God can clearly use us this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day for the cause of the kingdom and the gospel in our world. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we only can come to you in prayer because of the gospel. We know that our only access to you is through Jesus. So we don't take the ability to be able to come and call you Father. Like we, don't, we don't take that lightly. We don't, we don't come flippantly with that knowledge, Father. We, we come humbly, meekly, as beggars in need of your love and your grace and knowing that we've received it fully as Jesus went to the cross. So we live today for the gospel, Father, and I pray for those in the room who need to receive it for the first time, that you'll remove all obstacles, that there'll be boldness for them to receive it for the first time, and that they'll come and they'll find me and they'll talk to me about that. As we sing this song or after the service, Father, they'll come and they'll talk to somebody about their need for the gospel, their giving of themselves to the gospel, and we can help them in that journey, Father. Maybe they'll fill out a I have decided card that's in the, in the pocket in front of them and, and place it in the giving kiosk or give it to somebody at the next step's desk or give it to me, Father. Some bold step that they'll take. I have decided to follow Jesus for the first time today. Some of us in the room need to take one of those I have decided cards and we need to write on it. I have decided to make the gospel the focus of my life for the first time. I've been living a lie. I've been acting like it is, but it's just not there. And I'm going to change that today. I have decided to really restructure my life so that the gospel is at the core of of who I am. I'm going to quit chasing all this other stuff that I'm trying to find contentment in. And I'm going to rest in the gospel and in the gospel alone. Father, use me today. Father, I pray that you just give us boldness and courage to reset our lives in ways that bring you glory this morning so that we can become proclaimers and ambassadors of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.